Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Swift Over Coffee. I'm Paul Hudson. And I'm Michaela Karen. And in this episode, we discuss the earliest iPhone apps. I did not have an iPhone at the very beginning um, because I was <laughs> 11 years old. No! So... We ask folks whether new learners still need to learn UIKit. You'll get about 90% of the time, and then weird hacks, you sometimes need to copy and paste stuff from Stack Overflow without having to fully grok in UIKit. Would you do that, Michaela? Plus, all the design evangelists and similar just disappear like wasps <laughs> in winter. So folks, the first thing I want to say is I apologize for my terrible microphone. I'm on vacation right now and the mic I bought with me is not working. This is my MacBook Air microphone. How do, how do I sign, Michaela? <laughs> I think you sound pretty good. Uh, we have Thank an editor you. though, so it's okay. It's, <laughs> oh, it'll no. work out. <laughs> That's making, yeah, they'll, they'll just fix it all for me. They'll make me sound fantastic. I'm sure they will, yeah. Yeah, they're the real stars behind this podcast, not us. That's true. But I'm on vacation, <laughs> so the fact that I'm actually making a podcast by itself, I'm quite pleased with, you know? Yes, you're, you're doing great. <laughs> so how has life been treating you after Dub Dub? Hopefully relaxing, you've had your LA break, right? You've had some sun, sea and sand, and now back to work for you? Yes, I did end up going back to work. Did end up going back to work like I had to. <laughs> yeah, so I went back to work right after a vacation, um, which has been great. Um, I've actually been learning TCA. It's the composable architecture, mm. which is a, it's like basically not a competitor, but an alternative. Instead of using MVVM or MVC or any other random letters, you can learn a new letter called TCA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's been fun. It's interesting seeing just basically you can write one app and the different ways you can write that one app, even though it accomplishes the exact same thing. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're busy working hard because I'm on vacation again. <laughs> it was 37 degrees yesterday here in Tokyo. And we're talking about Celsius, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry. I, I, we said it was 97 maybe 98, whatever it is, freedom degrees. Uh, so we have like umbrellas, we have hats, we have sunscreen, we're avoiding the sun. It is hot oh, here. Oh gosh. We're having a nice time and I'm not coding. That's the main thing. Oh, that sounds nice. Uh, and there's, I know a, I know a couple actually developers in Japan. Uh, they can tell you what it's like, all the different like insider things to do too. Oh, I got some great advice from Tim Oliver. Um, you know, Tim's such a nice guy. He was at iOS conferencing at Paul Muir there, he was comparing it. Uh, and uh, he lives here. He's obviously Australian, uh, decided Japan's nicer, <laughs> and came here instead. He wants some somewhere even hotter than Australia somehow. <laughs> um, came here instead. Uh, but he gave me lots of good tips. So yeah, we're seeing a, a huge amount of stuff. Oh, that sounds super fun. Well, I hope you enjoy your break, and thank you for joining me for this lovely podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some news that's going on. So we just passed the birthday of the App Store. So Craig Granell is compiling a list of the first 500 apps that were on the App Store on July 11th, 2008. That's the early, early days of the App Store, right? That, that basically when it launched, more or less? I believe so, because it was the first iPhone came out in 07, but the SDK did not come out until right, right, the year right. later. So that was the very first day of the App Store, basically. Christ. Yes. Oh, man. So I'm sorry to everybody who may be listening to this podcast. I did not have an iPhone at the very beginning um, because I was 11 years old. So no. No. <laughs> I did not have a self. Actually, I did have a cell phone. I had a flip phone. At 11, um, Michaela? Wow. I had the Motorola Razor. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, but we could not use the internet or it cost a lot of money to use the internet at that time. Right. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't 11, I was significantly older, <laughs> but I still didn't, ha didn't have an iPhone the first time because I didn't think much of it, to be honest with you. I downloaded the SDK 
like before it was released in the beta period. And I was horrified by Objective-C. <laughs> <laughs> First impressions. <laughs> I was also blown away by like the glass buttons not being a thing. You couldn't make glass buttons. You got this hideous sort of rounded rect. We still haven't did it. <laughs> the original style of rounded rect buttons. And you had to actually render the, the glass button effect yourself in Photoshop and <laughs> draw them as pictures into your app. I was, I was genuinely like, what, what the heck? Stone Age development is this? <laughs> it feels so weird. Uh, so I was not there on day one either. Oh, man. The first, my day one was with um, the iPhone 4S because I remember the iPhone was carrier locked to AT&T. Mm. And we did not have that. So it wasn't until they opened up to Verizon that I actually was even able to get an iPhone too. Yeah, I guess in the early days, folks jumped ship to AT&T just for the iPhone, presumably. The big win for <laughs> AT&T in the early days, presumably. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. But, you know, I don't remember it. <laughs> you were 11, Michaela. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> but my first iPhone with the 4S, uh, I remember one of the first apps... Um, was like the iBeard app, the I like mm. drink app. So it used the accelerometer in the phone so that like you could tip the app <laughs> and pretend like you were drinking like some kind of yes. beverage. And that was the coolest thing yes. ever because it was like magic because, you know, an 11 year old doesn't think of, why does this work? Yeah, but it's <laughs> a whole like um, sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic. And that's what it was at the time. You could tip your phone and it recognized where it was being tilted. It was incredible. It was so breakthrough back then that that kind of thing was a big hit. Definitely, for sure. I remember that one. I also had uh, an air hockey app and like the like Bejeweled game, which was like all the diamonds and you'd match them mm. and now there's still like a million Classic. games like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I had Bejeweled too. Uh, the first app I downloaded was, was bizarre. I don't even remember actually using it at all. It's called Audi A4 Driving Challenge, uh, then Google Earth. And that was 2009, <laughs> um, so a little bit afterwards. But that it's interesting seeing that early list because so many folks were there on day one. You can see eBay there. You can see Flickr there. Of course, uh, James Thompson's Peacock was there on day one. And things that became big like Evernote and Instapaper are there as well on day one, which is just so fun to see. Yeah, I think it would have been really interesting to actually, I don't know, use something like that on day one because that's something I've never really, I've never done that with any technology using anything on day one. Um, so being able to see like what sort of magic people kind of made, I think is really cool um, because like by the time I got it, it was like one of those things, it was already popular. So like I was, yes, you know, at 11 years or yeah, was 11, yeah, 12 years old getting an iPhone the first time all the cool kids already had an iPhone. So like I was behind getting one. <laughs> well, the 4S was well into the massive, massive lines at Apple stores from just regular people. My like, first iPhone, fine, it was popular, but it grew hugely between then and the 4S. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, wasn't it? The 4S, came the 4S had Siri. That was the big thing. That was the big thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the four. I loved the four. The four had the sort of like it's now it's now the modern fourteen design, isn't it? Sort of flat edge design. Mm -hmm. Had the sort of silvering around the edge. You had the first Retina screen as a breakthrough thing, and four S had Siri, <laughs> um, which I'm sure is very nice. I know it's pretty in, in, integral to iOS these days, but uh, I'm not sure it's moved on very far in that time. <laughs> it's okay. Just don't tell Siri. Wait. Tell me what. Some of the fun things I liked about the early list of App Store apps, and I think Craig's, he's crowdsourcing it now, you can go and see them all. He's made it to, I think, 355 so far out of the first 500. Um, so he's still trying to collect more information on that. But I quite enjoyed looking through a list and seeing, um, you can see Scrabble there and Scrabble Premium because 
this is like before in-app purchases existed. It wasn't a thing. <laughs> it was the happy days and you paid money for an app once and got the app forever, yeah. well, in theory forever, uh, before, you know, 20,000 Smurf berries, whatever it is you try and buy these days. <laughs> uh, the, you know, scamware, basically. Uh, and so it, it feels so happy and innocent back then. Yeah, it, I remember all the different light versions of games. And then there were like the paid version. It had that little banner on it that told yeah. you if it was light or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just shame you on your home screen, basically. <laughs> so you knew. Also, I was interested to see that the, the, the British Airways app is was there on day one. I use that regularly today because that's my you know local carrier. And mm -hmm. it's still quite broken. <laughs> and it's like 15 <laughs> years on, the app is still fairly broken. Like often it'll say, sorry, we can't find any bookings for you. Like, why not? I fly with you regularly, like five times a year. Why do you find zero? <laughs> oh, I give up. 15 years, folks. <sighs> Calm, I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation. <laughs> Just breathe in and yeah. breathe out. Yeah, Japanese Zen. Okay. <laughs> so our big theme for this episode is how to contribute back to our community. That's a particularly hot topic right now because we're in July, which is hot for a start, but <laughs> particularly because WWDC's finished for another year. And so it means it's time for the community to step up and try and keep everyone connected for the next 11 months when Apple, well, what do they do, hibernate? Where do they all go for the rest of 11 months? You know, All the design evangelists and similar just disappear like wasps in winter. Just go away, never see them for 11 more months. Anyway, it's our job in the community to help people uh, stay connected. How can we do that, do you think? I think there's a lot of different ways to actually contribute to the community. Yes. And you don't have to be crazy like making a brand new YouTube channel, like I did. Because only a <laughs> fool would do that, wouldn't they, clearly? It's a lot of work, um, <laughs> but you can do a ton of different things. But like definitely the hardest thing you can do, but one of the things that is possible is going and making YouTube videos and like speaking at conferences because there's still like the whole half of the year, a lot of these conferences waited for WWDC to happen so that some conference talks are about whatever new came out of Apple. Yes, for sure. And it is, it is hard because I think it's the most it is the most public facing thing you can do. Get on stage and talk to a group of people and have it filmed and put on YouTube, yada, yada, yada. Um, people think, oh, that's that's the thing. That's what I should be striving for. That's my first step into the community. Well, actually, that's kind of like, if you imagine a, a, a large swimming pool, old style, with like multiple levels of diving boards getting higher and higher and higher. That's the top tier <laughs> diving board, right? You know, a conference talk is stressful. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of work, a lot of confidence, of practice it's hard that's what i consider the top tier diving board and youtube fine you're particularly brave you do it live <laughs> but you can at least do it pre-recorded they can edit that mistakes <laughs> and da -da -da. you have some control whereas conference talks you just do it live yeah for sure it's i like live coding because it's like i'm in my own house but it's because i can like really show you though really show everybody that you don't have to know everything for sure though so that's what i really like about live coding but yes it is one of those things so many things can and will go wrong live coding but in a conference so many things <laughs> yes. even more things can and will go wrong yeah i mean so what well, was a deep dish when the the first day the projector was just playing up the entire time yes it was oh. not having any success it was on off on off clicking in and out and i was at ios dev uk last year i forget the name of the speaker this young australian man gave me a talk his very first talk and the projector completely died oh no he had no slides at all the entire time oh. and still gave an amazing talk and i was like 
My friend, if you can get through that talk well, <laughs> which you have done, everything else, everything you yeah. ever get the rest of your life will be way easier than that. Well done. Yeah? Yes, I fully agree with that. Because, yeah, my conference talks a lot of the times either have pictures or, like, text that, like, you should read. Yes. And so especially my talk at Deep Dish Swift, which is on my YouTube channel, but it's showing code examples. A lot of code. Yeah. So it's like if we were talking back and forth and trying to explain, okay, so you do UI view controller, be sure to conform to UI table view controller. Yeah, like that would yeah. be so difficult. So like being able to talk like that with no slides is absolutely amazing. Yes, there's a reason we don't read code out in podcasts, folks. It just sounds terrible. Okay, so that's that's the hard stuff. Your conference talks, I, I think that's top tier. YouTube videos or live streams, particularly brave people. Let's go down a little bit. What's fractionally easier to do in the grand scheme of things, do we think? In the grand scheme of things, I would say one of the next, like, easier from that things is writing blog posts because you can write on some new topic, some kind of old topic, or even something that you're just learning too. Uh, but writing a blog post means you can think really about what you're trying to write and kind of get it either perfect or to whatever level that you actually want to release it. So you can iterate it over and over, but also... You can publish it and then go back and edit it afterwards. It's not Correct. something that's just like done, like there and gone. Yes. It's you can keep on updating it too. Yes, for sure. And I've told folks in the past that uh, the best example of this is the original Natasha the Robot um, blog posts. Natasha wrote a lot about early Swift stuff, Swift 1, early Swift 2 perhaps. And uh, her post on, for example, Flatmap, if I remember correctly, was particularly good because she started off by saying, I'm learning flat map. Here's what I found so far. And then she writes her views, her experiences, her, her trial and error with flat map. And then folks get in touch saying, oh, by the way, example three could be better, example five could be tweaked, example six, whatever. Here's a new example. And she learns from that and then posts their responses to her blog. So folks follow the same learning process as she did. So you're not like, you know, pulling the ladder up saying, here's the perfect way of using flat map. She says, okay, here's how I learned it. Here's how someone's explained it to me, his improvements to do it. And you can just follow along, follow the, the, the story with her. It works so well as a format. And all you gotta do is say, listen, folks, I'm not the expert here. I'm just learning this like everyone else. Here's what I think. So hopefully anyone can do that. Yeah, and I love that way. And I heard it, I think it was technically from like Gary V, who's like a influencer, podcaster, does a bunch of random things. Um, he was like, you should document, not create sometimes. So it's in the way of I'm telling people how I'm going about doing something. And that's how I started my Instagram account was like showing, hey, I'm learning iOS development. I wasn't telling people this is the best way to learn iOS development mm. because as we'll get into, there's a lot of ways to learn. Yeah. And the right answer is interesting and valuable and obviously important, but the wrong answers are valuable too. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done this, uh, here's my code. And people can see that and say, oh, that's not right, fix, make it better, da, da, da. But other folks come in and think your version's right and they'll learn why it's wrong and get the better version as well. So it all adds up to being really, really useful. Uh, and I, I wish more folks did it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I do think blog posts, the problem I think people face is they imagine that starting a blog means uh, committing to some sort of schedule. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, every week I shall write a blog about thing. <laughs> That's very hard to do. Not everything has to be forever, folks. You can write three blog posts ever and still contribute a lot back to the community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of folks out there who love to read your views on different topics. So they haven't got to be a, a gigantic 
com. <laughs> and it's totally fine if you don't like don't have any kind of schedule or if you s say that you're going to some do something and end up not. I if you go look at my blog right now, com and or slash blog and see mine, I have where I started a series, I got through three before I decided to abandon it. And then I started a different series and I got through five out of 20 before that or five out of 20 that were planned. But I got through five before I also abandoned it. And you can see it, it's on my website, like right now. And now I just told everybody too that I abandoned both of those because, you know, I had saw some, something else that sounded for, more fun to talk about. <laughs> Shiny object syndrome, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's okay. It's not like they still have they still have value by themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't like become worthless because you didn't carry on doing more and more and more of them. Like you know, folks occasionally say, "Oh, when's the next uh, Swift over coffee coming out?" I know some podcasts have like a regular every two weeks, every Monday, ten a.m. A new one <laughs> drops. Like. We're aiming for twice a month, but we're not sticking to it because we've got lives. We're busy. <laughs> we've got, you know, family life and stuff. So things happen, you know, we're doing our best. And if it's every three weeks sometimes, it's fine. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Just do what you can, basically. Yeah, for sure. How about open source? Because open source is, I think, uh, it, it, it should be easy. It actually ends up being hard for many folks. And I think we kind of landed in the, in the middle somewhere most of the time because... You know, making a small change to some code, like adding documentation, for example, is on the easier end. Triaging bugs on the easier end. But like opening a pull request for the first time, I know some folks feel worried about because it's public. It's on GitHub. If they've mm -hmm. made a mistake with Git, which is the space it is very easy to do, or screwed up GitHub, that feels scary, I think, for a lot of folks. Yeah, it definitely is very scary, I think, when I first did it. Um, and it has that barrier to entry of you first do have to at least know the basics of Git. So mm. once you kind of get that through that barrier of knowing the basics, which I feel like I'm just keep quoting myself of all the random things I do, but I have a YouTube video <laughs> that's on Git, yeah. but it's a conference talk because also, you know, I'm insane. But um, once you get over that just hump of knowing what is Git, you can do anything, literally. You can contribute to any project at that point. Um, but the biggest thing I did when I first started was I like very meticulously read through what's called like the contributing file. Mm -hmm. So this is literally the maintainer of that repository is telling you how to write that pull request. So they were like, these are the instructions that I want you to follow. And I read through that probably like five, 10 times before I actually made my first pull request. <laughs> and it was like a, a one line comment change in the end, so it's a really <laughs> small thing, you know? <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> but it still, it still counts. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, if you, you know, obviously adding code to a, a GitHub repo can, if it's a package could break someone's code in the future, who knows what, but like writing a test for a project, that's not breaking any production code, and that's hopefully useful. And so there are lots of easier ways you can start to contribute. And I do think that writing tests or fixing bugs is the easiest way to get into a code base. Because, you know, if it's a huge code base particularly, where do I start? Well, write a test for a small thing. Write a bug fix for a small thing. Work in that way, that way, that way. Or, like I said, documentation or triaging bugs. There are easier things you, you can tackle if you want to get into open source. Yeah, definitely. And there's this project that's in October. It's called Hacktoberfest. And this is basically like a month-long open source contribution um, event. And uh, with that, you can have repos or people put up their repos for Hacktoberfest and be like, hey, anybody can contribute. And they even tag specific issues as 
what's called like good first issue. So then like if you're a beginner, you can literally just filter all the issues by good first issue. Mm. And that can be one of the ones that you pick too. So like you don't even have to go through like a list of 200 issues or something. You can find a specific one that the maintainer of that repo said, hey, this is probably a good one for a beginner. And um, with Hectoberfest, it's I... I keep talking about myself. I'm so sorry. Um, I am going to be putting a repo up for Hectoberfest for that purpose of it's a repo that beginners can contribute to because, yes, it is hard, but it is so fun. And it's an app that I do want to end up putting on the App Store and like listing everybody's name. So like you can say, hey, I contributed to this repo. And also like, hey, you can also go download it on the App Store and see my name in this list of people who have contributed because I think that's so fun really getting to see like your project, like out in the wild. I agree. I think this is a particularly good episode of Michaela over coffee as well. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's because Paul's on vacation. No. I just have to talk about myself. <laughs> uh, I want to add, add one proviso into the Hacktoberfest thing. It was the case for a few years in a row, maybe it's better now, where you could win a t-shirt if you did enough pull requests in Hacktoberfest. And it was causing massive problems because projects, some I were running, would get the most inane, fairly useless pull requests. Um, just as someone could say, I've got another PR, another PR, another PR. Oh, I get a t-shirt now. Uh, and that was a bit frustrating. Maybe it's better now. It didn't happen last year or anything. I know they did a thing where instead of even winning a t-shirt, you could like plant a tree which is the thing that I ended up doing. But um, I think they have the same thing. They've just slowly gotten a lot better at um, handling spam PRs. Basically, yeah. yeah. But anyway, there there are ways to contribute. That's the main thing. Mm -hmm. And let's let's go even easier than that. Let's say, okay, you don't want to do conference talks, fine. You don't want YouTube videos, even blog posts, even writing docs or tests. Let's go even easier. I think the the sort of lowest rung of the diving board, (laughs) personally, I would say, is sharing content. Like if you've read, I don't know, someone someone like, oh, like Michaela, for example, made a good video. <laughs> you want to share a great Michaela video. <laughs> but sharing that matters because you're helping folks discover Michaela's stuff, passing on the word, helping lift Michaela up and encouraging her to make more stuff. Uh, because, you know, YouTube ranks videos highly if they have more, you know, likes and shares or comments or whatever. Um, and so taking part in other folks' uh, content helps a great deal. Yeah, definitely. It's you can really just start on any social media of your choice because there are now many. Um, (laughs) But really pick, uh, pick anything really. And just be like, I just read this article for the first time. I really like how it said XYZ thing. And I thought it was useful when I was learning functions, for example, or something. And that can be your contribution because somebody else will end up finding that who may be in the same spot and be like, oh, I haven't seen this article yet let me go check that one out. And they only know about it because you just happen to post somewhere on social media saying you like this article. Yeah, exactly. It spreads the word. And you'll use different language, perhaps, or you'll find different parts of an article interesting. Maybe it's an article covering four different things, but the headline doesn't really cover that. And actually, you're putting out point three. Oh, that's in there. I didn't realize and they, they grabbed that out. There's stacks of ways to do that kind of thing. And and by the way, folks, little reminder, you can tell your friends about Swift of a Coffee. You know, tell them you enjoyed the podcast and you enjoy Kenneth's videos, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great podcast. Tell Do them share about and me. And leave a review on, on uh, podcasts app too. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them all about Michaela. <laughs> That's the main thing. Even if you aren't sharing content, one other thing you can do, and this I, I, I really believe is actually one of the most important things out there, is answering questions from folks. I don't mean for like, you know, Stack Overflow point 
kudos collection. Just helping people out. Oh, I had the same problem. Here's how I solved it. Oh yeah, that error, here's what it means, whatever. There are folks posting all the time on Twitter about the, the tutorials they're following, whatever. They have questions in their words. You can answer in similar words, maybe got similar backgrounds, similar perspectives, similar learning background, who knows what. You can get alongside them and help them out. And it goes such a long way. I don't mean like, you know, full on mentoring people, but just answering one or two questions really, really lifts them up. Yeah, I completely agree. The open ballot of this episode was a hot one. <laughs> we asked everybody, does someone who is starting today still need to learn UIKit or a Swift UI enough? Mm. And we got many responses, to many, say the least. Many, 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 many. The first one, Gnome Effergon had said, I'm going to guess that 90% of the apps out there are either fully UIKit uh, or have them in UIKit. In a perfect world, with endless time, you could learn both. But in a realistic world, invest your time on what the market needs. So learn UIKit and go back to SwiftUI when you're ready. Okay, that's a, a, a strong one to start off with, Michaela, good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, you know, yes, fine. Maybe 90% of apps are UIKit today. I don't know, I've got no idea. I really don't have a first clue. Um, probably less than that, given that, you know, React Native is at least 5% and there's Flutter and who knows what. <laughs> anyway, um, possibly true, but you know, my best-selling app of all time is still on the App Store. I haven't touched it in seven years. That's UIKit and Objective-C cunningly. Uh, and I'm not counting that in, you know, future development of work. You know, what I care about now is what percentage of new code is UIKit versus SwiftUI. I think there the equation is very, very different. When someone says, okay, we need a new screen to do X, what's that going to be written in? And that, I think, is much more mixed. Yeah. I'd agree with yeah most of that then too. Fred mentioned that they learned the hard way you can't get a job with SwiftUI yet. And I would like to say that I do this this statement only, nothing against you. The statement has been debunked because I do know someone personally who has gotten a job and they only know SwiftUI, even though I like would poke them every couple of weeks telling them to learn UI kit. <laughs> um, they only know SwiftUI uh, and that and they did get a job with that. So not not that you can't, but maybe in their situation, they had trouble finding a job with only knowing SwiftUI. Which might be location-based. Um, just to say, I, I've done training at fan companies, like training 40 or 50 people exclusively SwiftUI. And that was like last year. Um, and so, you know, the huge, huge corporations are adopting SwiftUI at this point. Um, so I, the idea you cannot get a job with SwiftUI. Yeah, no, I'm not sure about that. Jared Davidson mentioned that as someone who's applying and looking for jobs, the answer is yes for knowing UIKit. At least having a fundamental understanding of how it all works is necessary. If, however, you're trying to build your own stuff, just go ahead and learn SwiftUI these days. You can do it with just about any idea. Yeah, so I guess here it's about things like the way UIKit works, because UIKit, at least traditionally, relies very heavily on the uh, target action pattern. They love delegation, for example. Subclassing is kind of baked right in. If you can get those three down, you'll be able to write at least legacy UI kit fairly well. I know they've changed to like UI action in recent um, years, but you know certainly iOS 13, 14 kind of period would be, would be perfectly fine. Um, so yeah, it's a, that's a more of a skill-based question, I think, because get the skills right. And because what I worry about ultimately is that there's a lot of uh, 
corner cases in UIKit and SwiftUI. And that's where the real money pays off, quite frankly, knowing all those weird table view or collection view corner cases. You know, Can you make a good flow layout with SwiftUI or whatever? Um, those are the, the real complex parts of the, the ecosystem. Um, whereas if it's more on the easier side of like, what's a delegate, how do you subclass? That's straightforward. I think everyone could pick that one up at the very least. Yeah, for sure. It's all about just knowing uh, the basics of how it all kind of puts is put together. And once you get that, yeah, it's then just knowing that UIKit and SwiftUI are very different though. Um, and Amy notes that, yes, she thinks that there's still a lot that's possible to achieve with UIKit that you can't do yet in SwiftUI. So there's still a lot of jobs requiring UIKit. Um, so by all means, learn SwiftUI first, but don't ignore UIKit. And that's a fair answer. I think that's a sensible um, answer. The reason I tell folks, learn SwiftUI first is partly you might find you never have to learn UIKit, hooray, you can avoid you know, auto layout, storyboards, or who knows what. Uh, but partly because they get velocity a lot faster with SwiftUI. So they get moving, they get confidence, they're building apps, they're feeling really good about app development. And then they go, oh, wow, UIKit's hard or whatever. A bit later on, they are <laughs> not faced with, with auto layout constraints and anchors and you know visual formatting language or whatever uh, straight away, which is quite nice. I'm, I'm interested, though, what Amy says, that there are things you can do in UIKit that aren't yet possible in SwiftUI because that there are some things. We talked about last episode, right? There are some things like yep. uh, measuring the text selection position, uh, having a web view, for example. But the number of things is remarkably small these days. And the number of things you can do in SwiftUI that you cannot do in UIKit, or at least not easily in UIKit, is remarkably large these days, thanks to, the, for example, the scroll view change in iOS 17. Um, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm interested here, particularly what Amy's keen to do in UIKit that you cannot do in SwiftUI. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I personally, because I don't build anything like crazy complex or custom. So for that, it's I haven't really needed to go back and reach for UIKit. And the one time I did was like doing a photo picker. But mm -hmm. that came along in SwiftUI. What was it? Not this past year. year, but the year before that was yeah, yeah. when that uh was it last year? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, sixteen, yeah, sixteen. That, that's where that came. That came uh, into what was that? Into Swift UI. So because of that, yeah, it's I haven't needed to go back, but I do know there's definitely like edge cases on specific things for sure. I was just talking to a friend who's like, I wouldn't be able to fully switch to Swift UI until iOS seventeen is the minimum, and sadly that'll be a long time, especially if you already <laughs> have an existing app. Um, yeah. But there are use cases out there. It just depends on what it's what you're building, kind of, and what your goals are. Yeah. Fair. Well, it sounds like so far, Michaela, this is mostly pro UI kit. It's like team UI kit, rah, rah, rah. Were there any sayings with UI? There were a few out there. So the, one of the first ones was uh, Constantine Bucha had mentioned that today you can find a project in pure Swift and Swift UI. It's four times easier to maintain and two times less code than UI kit. Half the code seems fair to me. That's, I'd say, even less than half the code. Is it easy to maintain, though? Or is that because less code? Is less code easier to maintain, though? Yeah. Because I would say sometimes not, because it depends on how it was written. I think what people are finding most is that because uh, in SwiftUI, we don't normally say how things should appear. It's all declarative. We just say, listen, I want a picker here, for example. That picker can just change between iOS releases. For example, iOS um, 13, 14, 15, when you use the uh, uh, a picker in a form, it would do a whole push and pop navigation thing, left and right, 
to select stuff. And then in 16, it changed to be a, a menu that appeared out of nowhere, just changed automatically. That's the new iOS way of doing things. And that's kind of a good thing to do because it means you fit into the, uh, the modern iOS way of looking and working, which is great. But if you weren't expecting it, oh, your documentation's wrong, your screenshots are wrong, your videos are wrong. That is definitely more work for sure. Yeah, and I definitely fell into that with one of my apps when I was still just learning too was around those times. And I was like, why did this change? I didn't change anything in my code. Mm. And I was so confused why that was happening. So UI, <laughs> what else do we have? But Giannis says that no, you don't need UIKit when you start, but you definitely need it when you're a senior and or freelancer. UIKit offers a lot more in-depth features for special use cases, uh, such as custom video players. True that. Absolutely true. And there we go. We found an edge case. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an edge case. It's not an edge case. It's not like, you know, <laughs> people always said, you know, Paul, how do you have so much time to do writing or blogging or videoing or whatever? And I'm like, well, look, in most teams, like if you make the Amazon app for iPhone, you'll find, oh, no, in iOS 16.5, uh, in iPhone 14 Pro Max, in landscape, in... Quebecois, you know, French Canadian. Um, there's a bug <laughs> with the layout because you've got this exact. That's, a, that's an edge case. That's an edge case, right? <laughs> um, whereas custom video player, I mean, that's not two edge cases, surely. But uh, at least I can see that being useful. But it's a, a secondary skill. It's not your day to day programming. I don't think. But Daniel mentions that I'd say SwiftUI is enough for now, but barely. You'll get about 90% of the time. And then weird hacks, you sometimes need to copy and paste stuff from Stack Overflow without having to fully grok in UIKit. Would you do that, Michaela? I so sounds like it has been done by me before. <laughs> Is, does your employer listen to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. If anybody is listening, I work at Lookability. I say hi. Yeah. And she never copies code from Stack Overflow. It's all handwritten, carefully optimized, uh, <laughs> beautiful UI kit code. And fully tested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every time. Every time. Um, so I think Daniel's point is, I think, honestly, fair at this point. You know, 90%, I think, is actually fairly accurate, if not a bit more than that. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say to swipe code from Stack Overflow without having to fully grok your kit. Okay, fully fully is the, a key word there. It's doing a lot of work in that. It's a load-bearing word in that sentence. <laughs> um, you, you can take code from Overflow if you understand what it's doing, fine. Yep. Swipe code from Stack Overflow or you know, whatever. Um, but if you're like, eh, I'm not really sure what this kit magic does, it solves the problem, that's good enough. If that's commercial code, just be be careful because <laughs> you've got to maintain that for quite a while. And the, the poor person following you later on the next year, year after, year after, they have to maintain it as well. And so, uh, yeah, let's not, let's not uh, curse your successes with bad code from Stack Overflow. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on the what are you doing with it? Like, what are you programming? That really goes into, are you going to get 90% of the way there? Are you going to get 80% of the way there? Or if, like, not there at all? Yes, if you're making a, a web browser, <laughs> I've got some bad news for you. <laughs> <laughs> William Robinson says that I think if you're starting today, you don't need to pay much attention to UIKit. It's probably going to take you 12 months of learning to get an iOS job anyways. So however, if you're somewhere with a legacy code base, knowing what to do with UIKit and Objective-C tends to be required to be a senior developer. Ooh, UIKit and legacy code base in the same sentence. Is, that, is it already old? Are we now all old for the fact that we all do know UIKit and all, all these little 
young new developers only know SwiftUI. Oh, you mean the ones who learned SwiftUI when they were 11, you mean, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those ones. <laughs> <laughs> those ones, yeah. I'm sure there are a few out there. Uh, the thing is, William's got a bigger point here, which is that if, if you're like starting today or in the first few months of learning, it takes time. You are not getting a job this month, next month, the month after. You just aren't. The current economy is a recession. You know, people who are very experienced can sometimes struggle to get hired right now. And so it will take you six, nine, even 12 months to get that first job anyway. And so fast forward till 2024, iOS 18, it's, it's only going one way, one way, folks. It's only going one way at this point. You know, there's no one saying, oh, no, let's reverse course from SwiftUI. The UI kit is the best way to build apps, says Apple. <laughs> it's not going to happen at WW in the future ever. It's just not going to happen. It is one way from Apple at this point going towards SwiftUI. And I, you know, I learned recently that, oh, I think we all learned recently because only only a new thing, that uh, the UI kit in Vision OS backs onto Swift UI. Interesting. Which is the complete opposite of iOS. In iOS, if you do a, a, a Swift UI slider, you get a UI slider from UI kit in the background. It renders down to the UI kit thing behind it. You know, right today, a, a list in Swift UI is a collection view on iOS. It just is, and that's how it works. But in Vision OS, it's flipped around completely. You use UI slider, you get a Swift UI slider behind the scenes. It's completely flipped around because that's where Apple are going. Their own core OS apps, the ones they ship with Vision OS, are written in SwiftUI. It's been there since day one. So they're taking it very, very seriously indeed at this point. And so uh, it's only one direction. Ooh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. I was just actually looking at the developer app today, and I did see a video that said uh, UIKit for Vision OS, but I haven't like actually watched it yet. But that's so interesting to hear. Because it's, yeah, two years ago now? Uh, Apple did make the big statement of yeah. Swift UI and Swift is the best way to write iOS apps right now. Which I, I, I can't even imagine what it was like to be a UI kit developer in Apple at that point, thinking here those words coming out. Because it's like, really? Because they have to then field that at all the labs the next week saying, really, really? I've got 100,000 lines of UI kit code. Are you abandoning UI kit? Are you abandoning UI kit? Are you abandoning it again and again and again? That must have been a pretty hard week for them. Um, and it, that was last year, but it, it, it's clearly Apple's uh, paces fairly quick on this one. Uh, we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but they're, they're not hanging around, let's put it that way. They're, they're pushing very hard. Yeah, for sure. But for everybody who was wondering, we did tally it up though, and we did double count some things here and there for this specific reason, but 11 people said mostly UIKit, 13 people said mostly SwiftUI, but Sam Krishna, Seb Fidal, Sam Raleigh, Michael Ronan, Ian McDonald, Roddy, Rick, and more people all began their answer with It Depends. So with that conclusion that's surprising to absolutely no one, that brings us to the end of episode three of Swift Over Coffee. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Our next open ballot is, do developers need to be designers too? Remember, tell your friends to subscribe, Leave a review on the podcast app, wherever you want to review your podcast on the internet, wherever you want to. Until next time, folks, take care. See ya.